mean, my priority at all times, Debs, is safety, safety, safety. So the only way I will work with anybody with a restrictive eating disorder is alongside a GP. I need to know they're being medically monitored at all times. And some other eating disorders, um, if somebody is purging, I would like them to be registered and I, I will make a connection with the GP. So we become part of the team, if you like, and I'm doing the therapeutic work. Yeah, I feel sorry for people. I don't feel sorry for people. That sounds patronising. I feel angry at the diet culture that we've created. And I can remember, you know, my mum going on diets and it, it being the big thing. And it, it's just not the way forward. It's, it's just, and, and, and gradually, gradually, but oh my gosh, too slowly we're beginning to realise that, that, that diets don't work um, and are actually more damaging. Hello, and welcome to the Natural Healthcare Network podcast. My name is Deb McLeod, and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today, we have Jill Wilson joining us. Jill is an eating disorder counselor. She has extensive experience in working with people who are struggling with their relationship with food. So I hope you find the information she had to share as informative as I did. So, Jill, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. It is wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Delighted to be here. Yeah, yes. Well, we are going to be talking about a really important topic, not that the other topics I talk about aren't important, but I think this is something that isn't discussed enough, although it is in your world. You are not only a friend of mine, you are a very talented counselor and you work with people who have eating disorders so um we're going to talk about that but i also thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit on i know you mentioned this in your website Mm because i've seen your lovely website but i thought it'd be nice for you to perhaps go into a little bit of detail about why you got into this line of work i'd also like us to talk if we have time a little bit about the body image work that you're doing with embrace uk because that all ties in with everything and anything else that comes up that's a lot to fit in a small amount of time but um if you're happy for us to do that does does that sound good okay yeah that'd be great good to great and thank you deb for giving me the opportunity because it is a subject that often isn't talked about so i'm always grateful to sort of have a platform to talk about eating disorders so in answer to your questions a little bit about me Um, I think I found myself, I think it was a bit of serendipity, a bit of life, a bit of, um, so my background is actually catering. That's what I went into. Um, And in hindsight, I don't think that's a coincidence that I was working with food. In my teens, I struggled, like a lot of teenagers, like a lot of women, I struggled with my eating, with my body image. I went through a period of restricting and dieting. I actually found I was pretty good at it and got myself into a bit of a pickle, but managed to get out of it. And I guess I'm also incredibly interested in psychology, us as human beings, why we do what we do. So I think it was just a mixture of everything that came together that I found myself in this area. Very, very intrigued what happened to me how I found myself in that situation. I talked to a lot of friends. Um, 
body image is so current, issues with food is so often there that I just found myself drawn to this area. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was very aware, I became very aware that there isn't a lot of help out there mm-hmm. for people unless you are very, very bad, very, very ill. And even then, resources are very, very stretched. And the best way to intervene with an eating disorder is early. So if, for example, um, you had a daughter and you noticed "Mm, she's lost a bit of weight and, oh, I've noticed that "Mm, she's not eating as much as at dinner and you just noticed her behaviours were changing, if you were to reach out for help, you would probably find it very hard to get some. This isn't knocking other professions or other doctors or anything, um, but very often if you go to a GP, it will be done on physical criteria. Mm-hmm. So unless your young person is severely underweight, then you probably wouldn't be able to access any help. But actually this is a psychological illness and somebody can be really, really struggling mentally with the relationship with food and how they feel about themselves without showing any outward signs. I think that was something that I realized both just by talking to my friends, my contemporaries, struggles that people were having, how food was dominating their lives. I mean, we have to eat three times, well, we don't have to, but we eat three times a day. If you were struggling with alcohol, you could try and cut it out of your world, but food, you can't. Food, no. food, we need to have some sort of relationship with food. Yeah. If that relationship is good, it can dominate your life. So that was really the main drive for me setting up my private practice so that people could access help before they were severely compromised or before the eating disorder would become really, really entrenched because all the evidence just does show that early intervention is key. So that kind of, in a nutshell, is is how I found myself where I am. Um, And I've been amazed. I'm inundated with inquiries with, you know, I have a very busy full private practice, Deb, and it's, there's a need for it. There's a need. It's almost like, you know, we've lifted the lid off this. Do you, do you find that you're having inquiries from all over the country or is it just primarily here in Devon that you're receiving inquiries? Things have changed um, with with COVID. Um, So my private practice is called Eating Disorders Counseling Services Devon. It kind Mm -hmm. of says what it is on the tin. So it's it's not a medical practice. It's, Mm -hmm. It's a therapeutic practice. It's a counseling service. So I was very keen that when people were looking for help in Devon, they'd kind of punch in the words and and I would pop up. But with the advent of COVID, we've all, therapists have gone online and actually I'm getting inquiries from not necessarily all around the country, but clients that I used to work. So lots of university students that then have gone home that are struggling and they've contemplated. So actually my client base is much, much further afield. Um, and if it wasn't for the fact that I'd have to redesign my website and all my business cards, etc., cetera, I, I would probably drop the Devon part of my title because yes. I am working with people all around the country, which is amazing because in the past, because of the, the guidelines of working with somebody, I was working face to face. Then when they would go home, we would end our relationship and they would find a new counsellor. 
Now, actually, with the advent of COVID and we can work online, the guidelines have changed slightly. So it's, it's actually had some real benefits that I've yeah. been able to continue working yeah. um, and lots of past clients that, that have relocated or contacted me. So, yeah, in answer to your question, I'm not just Devon-based anymore. Yeah. It's really good because you can maintain that continuity with that person that you understand possible triggers and you can perhaps do something in a much quicker time frame for them than having to go over everything again, which makes sense. There were a couple of things that really surprised me when I was looking at statistics. And I know that, that it's sort of vague because they can't quite identify the real numbers for people with eating disorders. But 1.25 million people in the United Kingdom are said to potentially have eating disorders. Is that right? Well, yeah. And I mean, how, how accurate those statistics are, because as I, as I say, I talk to many of my friends um, and they might have issues, but they're certainly not recorded. They're, Mm. They're certainly not, you know, eating disorders thrive on secrecy and shame. Yeah. So people don't often put their hand up and say, do you know what, I'm struggling with my food or I'm, I'm purging every night or actually I binge every night. Very often people just don't come forward. So I, I have no evidence to say this, but I, wouldn't, I would imagine the statistics are actually a lot higher. Those are the ones that are recorded yeah. Yeah. that are probably bad enough, in inverted commas, um, to have reached out for help. Mm. And so they're recorded. So... I, I dread to think what the true figure. I mean, I used to be a school counsellor at a local secondary school. And when I would work with young people, one of the things that we would look at would be, you know, you know, their eating, or how they were nourishing themselves. And again, it wasn't my job to, to diagnose somebody with an eating disorder, but often eating habits were very um, strange, unhealthy. So they were never recorded. So... Yeah, I, 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 I actually think the statistics probably a lot higher than that. Yeah, I'm sure they are. I mean, it's, it's an interesting breakdown. I, I've got a, a very dear friend who has anorexia. Uh, and so I learned a, a lot more about it and more of how to be more in tune and the sensitivities around it. But when you read the breakdown of people and the ages of people that have it, I mean, children from five years mm. old having eating disorders, I mean, that, that sort of took my heart and just squeezed it around into different pieces to think that you're dealing with children at such an early age that have eating disorders. It's just gut-wrenching. I, I mean, we could go on and, and talk and, about all of those really sad things, but I was really surprised to read the numbers around all of that. I know you probably aren't, but for someone who doesn't really work in this world enough, it, it was shocking to me. Yeah, it, it's, it's incredibly frightening. And I think, I think we all need to take a responsibility of, of messages that we're sending our young people mm. and the culture that we're creating. We're all part of this world. We all take some responsibility, even if we're not proactively promoting a smaller shape or I think we have a responsibility to speak up when we see something that's unhealthy I mean I know that there I've when my children were a lot smaller um, there was parents that were campaigning against the over sexualization of young children and some of the t-shirts with this with the logos and I I can remember um, there was a, a pencil case with the playboy logo on it and parents got that banned and we have a responsibility 
for what our young people are, are being subjected to. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit out of tune with children under 10, so mm. I'm not really au fait with what television programs they're watching. Mm. But again, we have a responsibility. I saw a very interesting piece of research that showed how the evil person in a, in a cartoon was often portrayed as fat and overweight and, and the unpopular person in the class is overweight or fat. And we are demonizing fat people. We are yeah. stigmatizing. Now, what message does that give to a young person's brain that, uh, oh, you know, to be overweight or fat is, is to be shameful or demonized? There can be many, many reasons why a child is overweight and I'm, I'm not promoting obesity, but what I'm saying is, is that little brains are like sponges and they absorb all these messages. And are they watching mum on diet? So they're hearing dad make comments about women's bodies. I don't know. I, mm. I don't know, but I put it out there because I think we all have a responsibility for those little brains. People aren't born hating their bodies. People aren't born wanting to be thinner. It's learned behavior. Now, where are, where are they learning it from? Where are we all learning it from? Is it pictures in magazines? Is it, uh, again, I'm out of tune with young children's magazines or cartoons, but we need, to, we, we need to take responsibility because they're children and we're the adults and people are making a lot of money out of what they're issuing or marketing um, and we need to protect our kids. So even if we're not doing it, if we see something that's wrong, I think we have a responsibility to speak up because, yeah, the, the, the figures are really, really frightening. They are. They are. And, and I guess one of the questions that I'm thinking about is one of the things that we ask in our, when we have a questionnaire for our clients is really in-depth. So we like to have full history, family history just so we can get a full picture of what's going on with them. And we do ask about eating and eating habits and all. What sort of tips, are there any sort of suggestions that you could share with practitioners on how they might broach a subject with someone that they think has an eating disorder to talk with them about talking with someone like yourself? Does that make sense what I'm asking? So you have a client come in and you can tell there's some issues. Either they start sharing that information with you. You know, what are some things that we could start asking them to make it okay for them to go a little bit further and then to find ways to help them get the right help? Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So if, if, if we take it back to when I worked um, at the school, which might be a good idea because young people weren't specifically coming to me with eating disorders. So my private practice, nine times out of 10, not always people come to me because they recognize they've, they've got an issue with food. So we've already kind of got off first base and they're in the place where they want to make change, especially mm-hmm. if they're an adult, they've, they've looked me up, they've made that phone call, they've engaged, they're paying money. They're in a place that they want to make a change. It's slightly different if they're a young person, their parents ringing, yeah. um, you know, that we have to work in a slightly different way. But if somebody's coming to, to me, they're just not in a good place or there's depression and anxiety, then what I tend to do is, is sort of use the analogy of a house. And if we want a really strong house, we've got to have good foundation stones. And those foundation stones will be things like your sleeping, your connections with 
um, with, with people. Um, and food is one of our basic foundation stones. So I'll treat it in a very general way, like let's look at, you, let's look at your food, let's look how you're nourishing yourself. And I will ask them to give me a snapshot of a day. Now, I know every day can be different, but to give a feel of, of how they're nourishing their body. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of young people, not all, but a lot of young people, and I know a lot of people don't have breakfast. So, okay, so that, that, that's nothing new, but if they don't have breakfast, and then you find, oh, they might have lunch, um, or they might skip lunch, or they have a club at lunchtime, which they couldn't have lunch. So you get an idea. And what I was finding was that a lot of people might have their evening meal, for example, in the family home about seven o'clock. Now, if you're then not eating till lunchtime the next day, I mean, my maths ain't brilliant, but that's about another 15 hours. So that's 15 hours. <laughs> so I, again, it's not my job to tell other people how they should live. Um, but if, if, there, if there's something wrong in their life, then food, is, it, again, I use the metaphor of a car. If we don't put fuel in it, it's not going to go very far. Or if mm. we don't put the wrong sort of fuel, it's going to break down. Or if we don't look after the car, it, it, it's, it's not going to run very well. So let's look at the nourishment that we're putting in. I'm very, very careful with my language. Um, so I talk about renourishing and energizing and giving your body what it needs. And I'm, I try not to be desperately prescriptive because we need to find out what's right for you. Because some people um, don't have breakfast. I mean, if I don't have breakfast, I'm the woman from hell by about 11 o'clock. I just am. So I'm the sort of person that knows I need breakfast. Yeah. But lots of people say, oh, no, I feel sick. I've got to get the school bus. I don't like, fine, 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 fine. But don't, don't, then why are you, why are you surprised when you've got low mood? Because your brain isn't being fed. Because so many people, particularly young people, and I think it's a natural stage, you know, young people worry about their looks. Of course they are. We, we all are to some extent. And their body shape but they think if they're going to eat, they're going to put on weight. What, what people so often forget is that we need food to nourish our brains. We, we need the minerals, vitamins, proteins. Cut. We, our brain, uh, I think it's 60%. I don't like quoting facts. 60% of our brain is fat. Now, when people cut, cut fats out their diet, no wonder they've got low mood. And when the brain is starved, you begin to make bad decisions, your mood drops. It, it's just, so I'm, I, I, I treat the person as a whole. This isn't just about your body. It's about your brain. And your brain, obviously, is so important to how you're feeling, decisions that you're making. So to go back to your question, I very often look at food as one of the basic building blocks try and get a snapshot of what they're doing. Um, and again, as I said earlier, eating disorders thrive on shame and secrecy. So I've got an awareness that actually they might not be telling me that they're, they get home and they're so hungry. So they go and buy five packets of Doritos and a packet of biscuits to eat in their bedroom. And then they make them, they might not be telling me at all. So the relationship that I'm building is very, very important and it's a collaborative approach. As I say, I'm not here to tell people how they should live. 
we work between us to find a way that is right for them. Wow. You know, what I think is, I love that you're talking about the restricted eating times because, you know, intermittent fasting is a really big deal. So you have that time restricted eating. There's plenty of research out there to show that reducing the amount of time you're, where you're eating is really good for your body. And yet on the flip side of that are all kinds of things. So you have to think about what you're eating, uh, which is going to, which brings up really interesting discussions about orthorexia. But so you're reducing that window. So people do go 15, 16 hours without eating. And then they have that time frame to eat. So I think this is, I mean, this is a, this is really fascinating to me, Jill, thinking mm-hmm. about how you unpick the good from those who are thinking, is this, you know, are you doing this for, okay, it's a health benefit or are you doing this for some other reason or what sort of stresses are coming around that? It's quite a delicate balance as always. It is. And what, what I, I guess where I'm coming from is everyone is different. And if you found a way that works for you, yeah. then go for it. But don't follow something that you see in a magazine. Mm. You don't know who's written it. You don't know, or you see it online or it becomes the latest thing and just follow it blindly because that's just frankly bonkers. You might want to give things a go. You might want to try, but it's finding the way that's right for you and your body. Well, I really, really struggle when people say, oh, yes, um, I've got an app and I'm following this and I'm, and I'm doing this number of steps. And I say, who wrote that app? And they say, oh, oh, I don't know. And I say, do the do people that wrote that app, that actually could be, with all due respect, some kids sat in a bedroom somewhere, they're probably not kids, but... Do they know anything about you? Do they know whether you've just had a bereavement? Do they know if you've had an operation? Do they know if you're having a period? Do they know if you've just split up with your boyfriend? Do they know if you're training for a marriage? Do they know anything about you? And, and they don't. And I think it can be incredibly dangerous where people follow something. They want it to work. They want it to. So, you know, it's an unconscious bite. They want it to be the right thing. Well, let's just have a reality check you know, for a start, who wrote it? And that, that's, that often we don't get off block number one with that. So, okay, try it if it's working for you, but don't come to me with anxiety and depression and you're following a clean diet. You know, what, what is a clean diet? That, yeah. that word is just bonkers to start with. I've said that to you before and you've really whacked me around with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, as I said yeah. Or language <laughs> is so important. Yeah. So if you're following a clean, in inverted commas, diet, and you then you don't follow the diet, what does that mean? You're eating dirty? Yeah. What does that do to you? How does that make you feel that you think, oh, I've eaten something dirty? It's like I don't hold with the whole healthy, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Because if you're eating healthily and then you decide, oh, I'm eating something in the unhealthy, what the psychology of putting something unhealthy in your body mm. is huge. So to me, I don't categorize food. All food is good. You are allowed whatever you want, but it is finding the food that is right for you. So I know that if I eat, I love fish and chips. I love fish and chips. 
if I eat it every single day, do you know what? I know by the end of the week that I'm probably going to feel a little bit bleh. My skin's going to be a little bit greasy. I, it's just not good for me to have every single day. Yeah. But do you know what? Once a fortnight, once every three weeks, I will love fish and chips. So it's, it's, it's not categorizing. I have friends who I've literally heard saying, oh, I was a bit naughty today. I had some birthday cake of my daughter's. And it's like, what the heck is going on that mm. we think we're naughty because we've had some birthday cake mm-hmm. of our daughters? That, that to me, has, we've, we've lost it. If we mm. can't sit and have birthday cake with our children. So don't, and don't tell your children you're being naughty. We're back to children. You know, they pick up on these things. Oh, I'm being good today. I'm being naughty. The language around food so anybody listening out there, I really, really would encourage you to think about some of it we don't know we're doing. Some of it has become so normal in our culture, but don't categorize food. And uh, because then what happens when you don't, don't stick to it, you're telling yourself you're being naughty and that's mm. not good for your mm. psychology and your well-being and your relationship with yourself. I've been naughty. No, you haven't. You've had a bit of birthday cake. Yeah, I well, I know one of the things that we try to do as nutritional therapists is, you know, we talk about adding color to the plate. So they just have a variety because you want to, to replace and you just want to fill the plate with those nice colors because you know that those colors from the fruits and veg are going to add so many different nutrients to you. But you're absolutely right. The word of being naughty, you know, of just saying, oh, I've been a bit naughty today. I've had this and that. And you know, what are the connotations around it? And, and it's unpicking why people are, are specifically following a certain eating regime, you know, what, what's behind it all. I mean, that does lead me into image, but I just wondered, you, you don't work with children. You primarily are working with university students and older people. Is that right? I'm qualified to work with anybody over the age of 11. So with the eight the age group 11 to 18, if mm-hmm. a parent was, would come to me with a child with an eating disorder, their first step, I would send them back to their GP. I would send them to their GP, and I need to know they've been seen by their GP. And possibly when I hear the story, I would ask them to, have, to get a referral to a paediatric consultant and to CAMS, Child and Mental Health Services. Because eating disorders in young people, I mean, eating disorders in any age group is serious, but in young people, mm. it, it's, it's very, very serious because it's a developmental stage. And if, for example, you are restricting in that developmental stage, you kind of take a chunk out of puberty. You don't play catch up. So you can do so much damage and there are medical, there can potentially be medical complications. So if the mother then comes back to me and says, yes, we've seen the GP and we've been referred and the consultant doesn't want to see us, but fine, come and work with me. But I need to know, I mean, my priority at all times, Debs, is safety, safety, safety. So the only way I will work with anybody with a restrictive eating disorder is alongside a GP. I need to know they're being medically monitored at all times. And some other eating disorders, um, if somebody is purging, I would like them to be registered and I, I will make a connection with the GP. So we become part of the team, if you like, and I'm doing the therapeutic work. So, and I do get a lot of university students. Um, and then I have, in fact, my private practice 
more or less mirrors the national statistics. I then have a group in the sort of 30s. I, I've got clients right up into their 70s yes. and I've got a handful of um, gentlemen as well. So really quite varied, which is because people sometimes say to me, oh, how can you work just with eating disorders? But trust me, everybody is different. Everybody's mm. story is different. The way that we work might be very, very similar, but will be different as well. So, um, yeah, it's a real range, but I don't work with a child below 11. Yeah. I th- it's more play therapy. I'm not qualifying play. I would love to be but there's only so much I can um, spread myself so thin. But um, well, You've got quite an age yeah. range from yeah. 11 to 70 is pretty big. Yeah. I was surprised to see the numbers on older people as well. Really mm-hmm. surprised to see that. And I don't know, I wonder if it's, it, it does, I think I've read that it says that it can happen, it can start in an older age. Do you find that the older people are, that it's something that's really been underlying for a while? And it's very just... often, very often, it's something that they've struggled with all their life. And then again, things are changing a bit slowly. We are talking about it a lot more. The stigma is going and a lot of women, and it does make me very sad, who have yo-yo dieted all their lives. And yeah. they finally think, right, this is ridiculous. I want to really sort this out. Um, so a lot of women that have sort of tried different things, tried different diets, and have kind of basically gone down the wrong road, really. Because diets isn't the way forward. No. Um, diets don't work. It's, it's a change of the way you approach it again the psychology behind it so yeah I feel sorry for people I don't feel sorry for people that sounds patronizing I feel angry at the diet culture that we've created and Mm -hmm. I can remember you know my mum going on diets and it it, it being the big thing and it's just not the way forward it's it's just and, and and gradually gradually but oh my gosh too slowly we'll begin to realize that that, that diets don't work mm. um, and are actually more damaging. So it's a change in yeah, the perspective and the relationship that we have with food and ourselves. So yeah, it's great. I, I mean, I love it that women in their 70s are thinking, yeah, actually, I can still change something. They absolutely can. They absolutely yeah. can. And the freedom and the freeing of seeing them becoming empowered and changing their perspective is, is just joyful to watch. Mm. Good on you. I love that. Yeah, definitely. Because you you think, I don't know, you would like anyone at any age to think, you know what, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. But it's nice. And at least when they get to the 70s, they're saying, I don't care. It's about me, finally, about them and doing something that takes care of them. Yeah. There are many of us in the nutritional therapy world that really don't like the word diet Mm. uh, because one, it has such negative connotations and it's really about what you're eating, what's in front of you and what, how are you moving and what could be going on internally? Because what people don't realize is that there may be something that's off within them could be Mm. hormonal, could be gut, could be a variety of things. You know, you just never know thyroid. You could go on and on. Yeah. So generally, I try to avoid that as well. Uh, with regards to men, it's, this is another thing that's a hidden thing because men are not very good at taking care of themselves. So 25% of men of 1.25 million, 25% are male. Mm-hmm. It's really surprising to me, and I don't know why, but 
I don't know. I mean, I think men maybe now are getting what women have had for years. So men's magazines, fitness magazines, yeah. more emphasis on their body shape. Whereas women have had this for years on magazines. Yeah. You know, women have been told to be small, pretty, delicate for years and years. And men are now being told to be butch and six pack and fit and buff and so I think the pressures on men over the past 10-15 years has, has increased from the media social media I think you know you could have a whole two hours yeah. plus 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 so I think social media's got got a huge role to play you know Instagram I think the brain pro- I can't remember the, the statistics again but the brain process images so much more quicker that, and so Instagram we're just seeing pictures and it's really interesting to see uh, again, I find the psychology of the profile picture that people put up of how they want to promote themselves. Mm. And it's different in age groups. But and, and again, big generalization when you when you look at that, that sort of, I don't know, 11 to 18. I mean, that's such a diverse age group anyway. But, you know, the boys want to look buff and mm. surfy and, um, and, and the girls, a different image. So yeah, I think social media and the advent of how we post pictures now probably has had a, a huge input. But eating disorders often, I mean, every, every story is different, but eating disorders can be and very often are used to regulate our emotions. So men have emotions too, and mm-hmm. sometimes aren't as good as women as vocalised and we're talking about. So again, they sometimes can use food to regulate their emotions if they've been through trauma or some other experience. Um, so there's no reason why men shouldn't. So I think, again, it's complex. There's many, many factors, um, but that's, that's probably one of the reasons that we're seeing the statistics increase. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure it's right. And I keep I keep trying not to jump into the body image thing because that's has so much to do with it. But do you do you work with many other like you work with a GP? You always work with a GP. Do you work with any nutritional therapists? I might well work with a dietitian. Okay. So again, depending on each individual person's circumstances. They might, very often when you've struggled with your food, you kind of lost your way. You can't see the wood for the trees and you've kind, you, you kind of need some guidelines really. And sometimes a dietitian can re-educate, is that the right word? Um, get somebody back on the right path. Very often when it's a young person, they've got their parents there and mum will be preparing the food and mum will know what mm-hmm. is right. And again, they, we can get some guidance from a dietitian. And sometimes that dietitian is an NHS dietitian that they've, they're in the system. And sometimes it's a private dietitian that I work alongside. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll have to talk more about that because I think that would be interesting to talk to you about the the differences of of working with a nutritional therapist and, and our governing bodies say that you need to get specific training in specific areas. So you are more of an expert because we're all complicated, but, but they're very complicated normally what's going on in their lives. And they're also very 
used to hiding things. So you need to be able to work together as a team and understand those nuances. So I think it's good that there are various training programs for nutritional therapists to go through so they understand the nuances. Um, So I want to just move on into how with all of this has created your other business that you started with was Embrace UK. And that is really revolving around body image, which obviously is so heavily intertwined with eating disorders and feeling that their bodies are ugly and not feeling at ease with their bodies. And, and I think I've only at 57. Oh, I can't believe I'm saying that now. 57. I've only really just come to a point of where I feel good about myself and okay in my own skin. And in some respects, you think, oh, that's really sad. But I'm just thinking, hey, that's really great. I'm there. You know, that's nice. I feel good about where I am. And so many people don't. So I'd like to talk about your quest and your drive and I don't know what words to put around it, but working on body image. Can yeah. we talk about that now? Yeah, Is now sure. a good time? Yeah, 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 sure. So it's no doubt in my mind that body image can be um, part of an eating disorder. So it was for me. It was for me. I wanted to be smaller. I wanted to be thinner. I wanted to be a certain shape. It was for me. Yeah. Um, And I'm certainly not saying that is for everybody. And I'm not saying everybody that struggles with body image has an eating disorder, but, but the two sit side by side, they they, they kind of sit well together, if that's the right expression. And the other thing that I found was that I feel so passionately about education and getting in early because a lot of this is preventable. And I think that's that, as I say, that's why I started up my private practice because if you get in early or you educate, you can prevent this. And when I was knocking on other schools' doors saying, hey, would you like me to come in and talk about eating disorders and, and talk to your young people? And it was, I found the door wasn't often open to me. There was a real resistance. It was really interesting. And I think, I don't know if it's right to say, I think it's a little bit but a little bit like bullying. Oh, we don't have bullying in this school. We don't have eating disorders. Well, no, you do. Every school does. It's how mm. you manage it. It's how you deal with it. And I just found I was, but it was really interesting because um, when I knocked on the doors with a different hat on, oh, would you like to come and talk to you about body image and self-esteem? And so, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Come on it. Yeah, we've got lots of that. We've got lots of people that don't like their bodies, that aren't comfortable in their own skin, that don't like themselves. And suddenly this, um, this whole other door was opened and I wouldn't go in and think, oh, I can now talk about eating disorders in a sneaky <laughs> way. But inevitably, it was kind of like a sister subject. So, um, and at the same time, there was an amazing film coming out called Embrace that was made by Tyron Brumfrit from the Body Image Movement. And it just sat really comfortably with my work. And I was able to go into schools, show the film, and then do a talk, and then maybe do some workshops afterwards. Indeed, some people then would contact me and want to come and see me privately who were able to open up about issues they had or realise their daughters. So it just slotted in beautifully with my work. And that's why I set Just Embrace UK up, because 
with my eating disorders hat on, I wasn't getting into lots of places I was keen to get into, whether it was women's groups, um, brownies, guides. But with this other one, it's about embracing yourself, loving yourself, being comfortable in your skin. And I was just welcomed in with open arms. So that's kind of taken a little bit of a backseat with COVID because I can't go into schools, I can't go into, um, but it's there. And it, it, I post slightly different things because it isn't for people necessarily that have eating disorders and it talks to another group. So it just sits beautifully alongside my private practice and enables me to encompass other people. And, and like you say, Deb, you know, you've got to 57 and, you know, that's joyful that now you feel comfortable in your own skin and that's mm. brilliant. But it'd be mm. great if we could get in early with the next generation and the next Absolutely. generation and the next generation so that we don't have this struggle. Or Because once you get to that place of liking your body and embracing it it's just empowering it's liberating you're not anchored down it, it's, it's just it's just joyful as i really really hope you've experienced mm-hmm. and you know what if somebody doesn't this is what i always say to people if somebody doesn't like me because of the size of my belly or i have cellulite on my thighs then they're probably not the sort of person i want in my life anyway so yeah. it sorts out the wallies it gets rid of all the idiots in my life and it saves all that hard work. So if I want to go to the beach, which, you know, this summer did a lot of swimming in the sea with girlfriends. And if they think, oh, actually, have you seen Jill's body? I don't think we want to invite her again. Then they're probably not the sort of people I want to hang out with anyway. Yeah. So it's just, as I said earlier on, Hating our bodies is learned behavior. You are not born hating your body. You are taught to hate your body. And somebody is making a lot of money out of convincing us our bodies aren't good enough and they have the product to make it better. I mean, I think it is just the most amazing feat of marketing how they have convinced young ladies and women that their eyebrows aren't thick enough or their eyelashes aren't long enough. I mean, really i know we you know i like to look good i like to look after myself but it's when that choice goes it's mm-hmm. when we feel we have to mm-hmm. and when we feel we're not good enough if we don't that's yeah. when we start to get a problem it's and- always those blurred lines isn't it it's just that fine line of are you doing this because it'll be fun and you think it's a really fun thing to do or you really want to do that for yourself because you know this is how it will help you feel and make you feel better and better and better or 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 you feel like you have to do it. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Debs. And I, what I say to people is careful, be careful there's not a should there or ought. Oh, I should put my makeup on before I go out or I ought to get my hair dyed. Be careful of shoulds and oughts. Mm. If you want to, like you're saying, if it makes you feel good, then do it. Go for Mm. it. But if you're doing it for somebody else or Mm. because you feel you should, then begin to question it. Just just wonder why you are doing it. And Mm. I think that's where particularly a lot of young people, they just get caught up in all these shoulds and oughts. and, um, And as I say, I say to them, just think, is somebody making money out of this? And you've still got a choice if you want to do it, but just think, right, what, what, what's going on here? Yeah. 
somebody is making a lot of money out of convincing me my body's not good enough and they've got the product to fix it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think, and I'm sure you'll agree, I don't think it's just for young people. Hmm. I think for older people, we're all caught up into that. If you're looking at just, you look at the TV and advertisements, we just, it's just crazy how things are promoted. And, you know, if you do this, you're going to have all these yeah. wonderful things. So, But what's so funny is once you change your perspective, then these adverts just become so humorous and so ridiculous mm. and mm. so laughable. And it's... you think, how did I never see this before? And, it, and, and so it's changing the perspective and making us all aware of how it's a load of baloney. You know, you look at those perfume ads and cinema. I remember when you used to go to the cinema. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> it, it's, it's just laughable. There's a wonderful, wonderful woman, um, Celeste Barber, on social media. And if anybody, you know, humour is a fantastic tonic and she basically does parodies of these ridiculous adverts. And I'd encourage everybody to, to look her up and follow her because it, that's the perspective we want. Yeah. We take it also seriously. We see somebody in this perfect body and they think, oh, oh yes, yes, yes. But as actually seeing Celeste then sort of mimicking in, in another way, you just think, God, I'd rather be her actually. She's having a laugh. She looks like she's <laughs> leading a good solid life there. <laughs> So. Totally bonkers and so funny doing the stuff that she does. She's so funny. So there are a couple of other things that I thought would be helpful to talk about. One is I'd like to chat a little bit about orthorexia because I think orthorexia is becoming another flip side for, you know, you're trying to eat well, you're trying to do all of these things, but it's just one other add-on to potential eating disorders of just being so obsessed. Are you seeing orthorexia becoming more prominent uh, or do you notice it? I notice it a lot within my own industry because we're, you know, everyone wants to be very mindful of the foods they're eating and, oh, you know, it should be organic. Well, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not organic in our house all the time. And sometimes we do have some sugar and yeah, I do like a packet of crisps, you know, <laughs> Ooh, you know, all those things. But do you find orthorexia is becoming more prominent? Yeah, I mean, when I, when I work with somebody with anorexia, again, bear in mind this is a big generalisation, but there are certain personality traits that one sees with somebody struggling with anorexia. And usually that will be somebody who's very determined very um, focused, usually very intelligent, probably quite sensitive. They're a perfectionist and got very, very high standards. So, and those are great, great qualities to have, but they need to be managed and they need to be watched. So what I say to people is those are amazing qualities and I want you to have those for your A-levels, for your degree, but what they do is they tend to put all those qualities into all areas of their life, including their food. So they want to eat to a very, very high standard. Um, they want to do it really, really well. They want to do it in a perfect way. Now, actually, that's not possible with food. Food isn't like that. Food isn't a perfect science. As I said before, what is right for you today, Deb, your circumstances, what's going on in your life, might be completely different from what's going on in my life and what's right for me. So 
you're on a hiding to nothing trying to do your food perfectly mm-hmm. and this is where orthorexia kicks in because you find that people are reading manuals they're reading science to the nth degree they're reading what combination can go with what combination to and yeah i'm not saying there's not some value behind all this but they do it to the nth degree and it just getting yourself in a pickle and almost overthinking completely overthinking and then they won't eat this or they'll only eat that with that and that with that and before you know it we've cut out an awful lot of food groups and it's completely gone haywire so i think with that personality type that you often see with anorexia yes i can see it with orthorexia and i do see people who say i just want to be healthy i just want to be healthy okay so what is the definition of health that you are eating all these amazing foods, but you both won't bond with your daughter with a piece of birthday cake. Now that to me isn't healthy. Healthy is looking at you as a whole person and whether you're getting worked up because you know your daughter's going to have a birthday cake and you don't want any. Mm. That to me isn't good health. Good health is eating stuff that is good for us and you found what works for you. And occasionally you can have things that are also going to help you bond. We use food for all sorts of things to celebrate, to bond. So it's getting that bigger picture and very often again with that personality type they look they look at the tiny tiny they'll get into the tiny tiny details rather than the bigger picture and what is the bigger picture here that actually you're set in my counseling room because you're not well you've tr- you come in from a good place i always work with compassion and kindness because people have usually come from a good place they want to do things well so there's no, you know, they're not stupid, they're not daft, they just slightly needs to tweak it back online again. Mm-hmm. They're coming from a really good place and they want to do things well and they've tried to do it super, super, super well. And they will because but that, that isn't the right headspace to be in with your food. Usually they're too young to remember Wurzel Gummidge. Do you remember Wurzel Gummidge? Do you remember Wurzel Gummidge, the scarecrow? And he had different heads and he could take heads off. And I say to them, right, Take your academic head off, park it over there. We're now putting your food head on. What do you fancy? What does your body feel like? Are you hot? Are you cold? Do you want something crunchy? Do you want something savory, something sweet? What's your body telling you? Because people get disconnected with their body and they get into a cognitive headspace. And that isn't how food works. You're not a computer where you think, right, I can have quinoa, feta and blueberries. It's like, what do I fancy? No, I fancy a big bowl of tomato soup and freeze it. Or actually, no, I just, I just kind of want, I don't know, I just want avocado and mozzarella. So it's what you fancy. The human body is flipping amazing. It and is. it will usually tell you if you tune into it. And I know it's not as simple as that, but that's what we tend to lose. We tend to get disconnected from our bodies and very often we get disconnected from our food so it's it's a different mindset very often people with orthorexia are very much in their heads doing what they think is the right thing they're they're coming from a good place but it just needs we just need to get you on the right path again well i know on your website you've got a tick list of signs for people who have various 
eating disorders, which is which is great. It's really helpful. It's there's lots of valuable information on there that will certainly direct people to, so they can at least get an idea of what some, what might be happening if they're seeing someone in there unsure of whether they have an eating disorder or they know they do. And a lot of times it will come up through the questions that we ask in-depth questions in the questionnaires. So people share a lot of health information with us and life information with us because again, from a naturopathic nutrition standpoint, it's about the whole being. So very much like you're saying, you want to look at everything to know what's going on with that person and why something's happening so you know you can start gaining an idea that there's something else going on with them and i think what's important i really feel very strongly it's important for practitioners to have a toolkit of people and resources that they can go to are there any little bits that you would be able to share briefly with us right now what what to look for yeah, yes. I mean, I um, what I say to people, I, I guess if it's if you're looking at yourself, then again, remember there's no shoulds, no, there's no oughts. If you don't feel happy with your relationship with food, if you are aware, if you sit down and have a little chat with yourself about your relationship with food, if you're not happy with it, then that's good enough. That's good enough. Um, if you're watching somebody else, then yeah, like you say. On my website, there's a list of all sorts of things. Um, parents are very good. They get, no pun intended, they get a gut instinct. They know their children better than I do. That's what I say to them when they ring me up and say, this, this, this. And I say, look, you're worried. I'd listen to that. Something is going on that you're picking up on. So, so that's, that's good enough for me. I have the beauty that being a private practice, I don't need... Um, somebody to, to fulfill criteria before I work with them. If they're not happy, then let's come and talk about it. Let, let's find out what, what's going on. Mm. Um, it might be overeating for emotional reasons. It, again, there might be trauma, there might be abuse. Um, certainly when somebody's restricting, um, the place that we start is refeeding. There is no point doing therapeutic work or looking at a story or if their brain is undernourished, because as I said, right at the beginning of this podcast, when your brain is undernourished, it doesn't think straight. It makes bad choices. So we need to look at um, where that person is nutritionally and get, and get them refed. I don't work with anybody with a BMI of below 16 because mm. one the theory being once they're below that, then it's more, more of a team approach. There's more medical complications. And as I say, safety, safety, safety mm. is, is paramount. So when somebody gets below a certain threshold, then I, I can't help them. But mm. I am able to help such a huge proportion of the population where they're not bad enough to get recognized help, but they know things aren't quite right. Either they get very worked up about, I work with people who um, don't like eating in public, don't like being watched. So that's not a recognised eating disorder. It would come under heading, of, you know, I can't remember what it is now. Of, um, but anyway, there's, there's like a group heading. Um, so there's all sorts that don't fit nicely into a, into a diagnosis. So I don't know if I've really answered your question, Debs. Yes. 
no, what to look out for. But um, I think probably what what happens is that people, as you say, you know, as as practitioners, anyone, uh, any type of practitioner, they get when they spend enough time. And the advantage for people like myself is that we have time with our clients. It's not a seven minute session. Mm-hmm. We can actually start talking with them and you get an idea of more about the person and what's happening. So I think it's helpful for people to know that they can go somewhere. So your site has some great tips and information in there. On the website, there is, there's a resources section and there's a list of books there. There's some great, great books and websites, particularly, I know we've kind of, we've mentioned more about anorexia today, but there's some great, but there's a great website feast which is run by parents who've had the lived experience of a young person and it's a phenomenally, oh, it's an amazing website. It's down to earth, practical advice for parents or anybody struggling with anorexia. So there's some great books. I'm looking at my bookshelf at the moment, but they are all on my website, which is King Disorders Counselling Services Devon. As I say, it is what it is on the tin. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I'm happy to send you some more the, the links, Deb, that can go on the show notes. That's fine. Yeah, just send me any links. You've got a great website. It's really terrific. And we can put Beat up there as well. And yeah. But that'll all be on the, the resources page. Yeah. I know you'll have all of that. So yeah, that's terrific. Cool. Is there anything else that you would like to share right now or talk about right now? Um, no, I, th- I think, I mean, it's, it's been a great conversation. Eating disorders as I say, can, can dominate somebody's life. As I said before, if somebody's struggling with alcohol or drugs, we can try and get them out of their lives. And you can't with food. We all have a relationship mm. with food. And most of us eat at least three times a day. So if we're struggling, it's, it's really, really hard. And people don't need to struggle. People don't need to struggle. Um, so I, I really value the fact that you asked me to come along and just opening up this subject because eating disorders thrive on secrecy and shame. And more we can break that down, yeah. um, the, the, the more we can. And it's amazing once you start these conversations, people go, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, I struggle with this or that. And the other thing, as, as I said earlier on, I think we all have a responsibility, not only on what we're doing, but when we hear other people doing things that perhaps we don't feel are quite so good. And I know this is more challenging, but I, I do put it out there because you probably know, Deb, that when I'm with friends, if they start talking about diets, it's just like, really, really, guys, can we, you know, can we talk about something a bit more edifying, like world peace or the homelessness? I, I, you know, I love you, but I don't want to hear about your diet. And I just think, we were talking earlier about young people and the culture that we have, we can change it. For example, it really irritates when somebody says, wow, you've lost weight. Now, we don't know if there's been a bereavement. We don't yeah. know if they're ill. We don't know. And we celebrate weight loss. Now, why do we do that? Why yeah. do we do that? So I think we, we all have a responsibility. We can, sounds corny, we can be the change. We absolutely can. And I think if we do our little bit within our world, within our circle, I hear mums who say, oh, I don't want to be in the photo. I don't want to be in the photo. Just be in the bloody photo. Just get in the photo. When your child looks at a photo, they will remember the memory. They will remember the, the energy, the feeling, the vibe. They won't be looking at their mother's thighs. They won't be looking, you know, just get in the bloody photo. And it's things like that that 
is holding women back. I mean, I'm getting on my feminist bandwagon now, but it, it's, we've been trained to be small, to be certain shape, to look a certain way. No, 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 no. We can be who we want to be. We want to be strong, healthy, fit, live our lives to the fullest, not weighed down by diets and the way that we should look. So I, I feel passionate about it because I got caught up in it. And I know how it weighs somebody down or weighed me down and dominated my life. And once you get rid of it, once you're free, it's, it's just, it's just lovely. It's just lovely. I can worry about, um, I don't know. I can worry about, well, I can get more involved with other things other than worrying about what I'm going to have for lunch. I decide what I'm going to have for lunch when it's lunchtime, but I can, meanwhile, I can, you know, be filling my brain with other more important things. So yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity. Um, my website's there. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Yes. So happy for people to get in contact with me okay. if you've got any more information. So Okay, I'll yeah. be sure and put all of those links up there so that people can get in touch with you. So thank you so much. More than welcome. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Deb. <laughs> Well, folks, that's all for today. I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in to my conversation with Jill. It was certainly enlightening for me, and I hope you found it of value also. I'll be sure and provide a link to her website where you can find the resources that we discussed. I will also include ways for you to follow her or get in touch with her on various social media platforms. Now then, there are a few things that I'd like to ask you to do as usual, and one of them is, if you haven't done so already, please leave me a review, and I would also ask you to please share my podcast with others you think will find it of benefit. And on another note, I'd like to talk to you about that Belican because you've got it. You've got to bounce soft to feel good. It really is one of the best things that I have done for my own health and well-being over the past year. If you would like to find out more details about it, please get in touch with me. There will also be a link in the show notes so you can go and have a snoop around the Belican site yourself. I'd also like to remind you of the event that Anita Beardsley of Love Nutrition and I are going to be hosting next year on 27th of March, 2021. It is going to be on the multifaceted effect of gut health. And we are delighted to say that we have Dr. Alan Desmond joining us, Dr. Elizabeth Phillips, sports medicine physio Claire Sinton, and Dr. Caroline Gilmartin joining us. At this point in time, there is no way for us to say whether it's going to be in person or online, but we will be sure and keep you updated on this as soon as we possibly can. I'd also like to say how appreciative I am of your support for my podcasts. These podcasts are here for us to collaborate, communicate, educate, and inspire one another. So thank you again for joining me. And until next time, I'd like to wish you and yours the very best of health. Bye for now. Bye.